I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. On today's episode, we will focus on a trio of Title VII cases argued before the Supreme Court during its first week. Uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits employment discrimination because of sex. And these three cases ask whether discrimination because of sexual orientation or because of gender identity is also prohibited under Title VII. Uh, Two of the cases, Bostick against Clayton County and Zarda against Altitude Express, are brought by employees who say they were fired for being gay and are suing their employers. The third case, RG and GR Harris Funeral Homes versus EOC, centers around Amy Stevens, a transgender woman who says she was fired from her job at the funeral home because of her gender identity. Joining us to discuss these fascinating and important cases are Karen L. Lowy. Karen is senior counsel and senior strategist for Lambda Legal, the oldest and largest national organization committed to the civil rights of gay and transgender people and those with HIV. She leads Lambda Legal's impact litigation and is counsel of record for Lambda's amicus brief in the Harris Funeral Homes case in support of Amy Stevens. She was also involved with Lambda's submission of a cert petition in evidence against Georgia Regional Hospital, the 11th Circuit precedent that was the basis for the circuit court decision in Bostick. Karen, thank you so much for joining. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And David Upham is Politics Department Chair, Director of Legal Studies, and Associate Professor at the University of Dallas. He was counsel of record on an amicus brief by the American Public Philosophy Institute in support of the employers in this case, and his research focuses on constitutional law and history and political and legal theory. David, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Well, let's jump right in to uh, Bostick and Zarda, the first two cases that were argued. And let's begin with the basic statutory question. Uh, Is it discrimination because of sex to fire someone because they're gay? Karen, what did Pam Carlin, the attorney for the people who were fired, argue on this point? Sure. I mean, there are basically three arguments um, for why discriminating against someone based on sexual orientation is discrimination because of sex. Um, The first is a straightforward argument that had Jerry Bostock been Geraldine Bostock, his attraction to men would not have been problematic and he would not have been fired. It's a very straightforward, had he been a woman, he would not have been fired. And therefore, that is discrimination because of sex. The second reason is that it is really flipping flipping it. Had Jerry Bostock been attracted to women, he would not have been fired, but because he is attracted to men, he is fired. And it is the sex in re- of his intended romantic partner in relation to his own that is because of sex. And that's a direct parallel to the cases that have recognized that discrimination um, against employees in interracial relationships or associated with, with folks of a different race or a, the same race, um, that that is a form of race discrimination. And so by parallel, that is, that is discrimination. 
discrimination. The the third argument is that, um, in essence, Jerry Bostock and Don Zarda defy an essential stereotype that is based on sex. Um, and under the Supreme Court's jurisprudence um, in the Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins case, um, sex stereotyping um, as the basis of adverse employment actions is also actionable under Title VII. And here, the stereotype is that men should be exclusively attracted to women, and therefore gay, lesbian, and bisexual workers defy that inherent sex-based stereotype. And because they defy that stereotype, actions taken by employers against them um, that are adverse um, is a form of sex stereotyping that is prohibited under Title VII. So those are the three basic arguments for why Title VII prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation as a form of discrimination because of sex. Thank you so much for presenting those uh, three arguments. Uh, you said that had Gary Bostock been a woman, had he been attracted to women, or had he conformed to the uh, stereotype that men should be attracted to women, he wouldn't have been fired. And for those three reasons, uh, this is discrimination because of sex. Uh, David, what is the counter argument on behalf of the employers? And what did their lawyers argue on the textualist question before the Supreme Court? Um, I think the, the strongest argument um, they have arises not from the text, but from the original expectations or intent of the of the drafters. Um, and so that the idea that this was completely outside the expectations of the uh, of the drafters, it would say it's not, it's not so much original text, but original expectation was the was the one they focused on. The, 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 the second would be that there was. Um, uh, the precedent up until uh, the 21st century, right, for the first 40 years or so, that the federal courts generally cited against these type of claims. Um, but on the textual argument, um, uh, in particularly in their briefing, um, they indicated that they thought that the word discriminate uh, might have uh, two meanings, and one of which would be favorable to the to the plaintiffs, namely that any distinction you make, you make note of someone's sex, and that is. Uh, a but-for cause of an adverse employment um, uh, effect, that that is sex discrimination. But uh, there's another sort of di dictionary definition of discrimination, which would be um, to treat someone disfavorably as member of a group. And so in the case of sex discrimination, it would be to harm uh, women, uh, not men, or vice versa. Uh, but it's, it does not require that there be a kind of absolute sort of sex blindness and that sex sex distinctions could not be noted or be the basis for any employment decisions. But it really must be something that's adverse to to one sex or the other. Um, and so that the textual argument that they made um, cited dictionaries that that un, that, that in, indicate that the word to discriminate um, may mean something uh, more of a kind of uh, that doesn't isn't simply making a distinction, but effectively harming women as women or men as men. And those that does not seem to be at issue here. Karen, indeed, that question of the meaning of discrimination came up in the oral argument and also in Judge Lynch's uh, opinion on the Second Circuit ruling against uh, the plaintiffs. Uh, tell us about uh, your response to the argument that discrimination means not simply making distinctions, but adversely harming uh, members of uh, one sex or the other, and that that doesn't occur when someone is fired for being gay. 
Um, so the the question really was about about whether you know discrimination is required to be group based and and ad- adversely affecting women as opposed to men, um, and sort of what the the original understandings were of how the statute would apply. Um, and the response to that we heard a lot about at oral argument, which is that Title Seven asks um, whether an adverse employment action against a specific employee um, is because of sex. It is an individualized inquiry. It is not a group-based inquiry. Don Zarda was fired because he himself, had he been a woman, he would not have been fired. It is because he is a man attracted to men that he was fired. Um, And that is something that the text of the statute speaks to directly. With regard to um, you know, what What Congress understood the statute to apply to writ large, Justice Scalia's unanimous opinion in On Call versus Sundowner um, really addresses this directly and makes clear that it's the text of the statute that controls its application and not what Congress understood it would apply to at the time that it was enacted. So whether or not Congress had been thinking about um, the application of this statute to LGBTQ people at the time is is rather irrelevant. The question is whether what LGBTQ employees are facing in the workplace is because of sex under the straightforward application of the text of the statute. David, one textualist justice who seemed uh, to some unexpectedly sympathetic to the plaintiffs was Justice Gorsuch. And in the oral argument, he said uh, several times that the textualist arguments were close, that uh, the statute uh, requires uh, discrimination because of sex to be one factor, not the only factor. And here it was one factor. And then he talked about the potentially disruptive social consequences and asked about them. Were you, what did you make of Justice Gorsuch's uh, questions and what's your response to them? I think they're they're very good questions. Um, I'm I, I'm favorable to. I don't know if I would call myself a textualist, but I'm very favorable to Justice Scalia's um, putting the primacy on the text, and the text should should bind uh, even uh, even outside some of its um, originally ex- expected applications. Uh, and I think that um, Justice Gorsuch was responding to that, much like um, J- Judge James Ho had an opinion here in the Fifth Circuit, in which he identified the. Uh, the textual issue to be something of a close question, but he nonetheless decided on the conservative side of things. And I, uh, if if um, what Gorsuch would say, I think, or what he suggested was that the textualist claim is close, but then other considerations like originally expected applications, precedent, and in his, his case, uh, the effects of uh, deciding um, Title VII in the more progressive way uh, would would resolve, in some sense, the uh, the indecision left by the indecision in the text. Um, I, my own opinion on it is I don't I don't really think the text is actually as indecisive as as he indicates. I'm I'm, uh, in some sense far more conservative than Gorsuch and and Judge Ho on this, uh, because I think the word sex discrimination already had an acquired legal meaning. Uh, for decades, American law had various prohibitions on sex discrimination in schools, in voting places, and increasingly in employment, um, and also in international law. And decades of experience under that indicated by deafening silence that no one thought it would affect things like um, sex, very sex-specific terms of address, sex-specific um, restrooms, sex-specific dress codes, and a very and universally accepted sex-specific definition of marriage. So in that respect, I think the text, um, the text itself, without looking at originally expected applications, already had a legal meaning, and that that should be decisive in the case. 
I should mention that no one in the, in the oral argument um, indicated that they had uh, read that particular brief of mine and uh, <laughs> took it very seriously, but it won't be the first time I'd be disappointed in that respect. <laughs> Well, I'm sure that after they hear about it on the podcast, then they will go back and learn much from it. <laughs> yes, yes. Read my brief, judges. Come on. So absolutely. <laughs> a um, perpetual amicus's lament. <laughs> and of course, we the people listeners should read both of the briefs filed by our discussants today. But let's focus, take one more beat on this textualist argument. Karen, as David says, uh, because of sex did in the case law have uh, – a certain meaning before these cases were argued, lower courts had disagreed about whether it included sexual orientation, although they did not disagree about whether it included discrimination against transgender individuals. Uh, what did the lower courts that held that because of sex did not include sexual orientation hold previously? And why did the justices seem less sympathetic to their arguments last week? So, by 2006, every numbered circuit had held or stated in some way, largely in dicta, that Title VII did not prescribe sexual orientation discrimination. Most of those courts had some ver variation on, on um, exactly this theme that Congress couldn't have anticipated it or that the words sexual orientation are not present in the text of Title VII. But what we know in looking at these cases is that these courts did not actually ask the question required by the statute. The question required by the statute is, did this worker experience discrimination because of sex? And these courts did not undertake the analysis or, or really address any of the arguments that I laid out for why um, when lesbian, gay, or bisexual employees or workers um, are denied jobs or fired from jobs or face other kinds of adverse employment actions, that that is discrimination because of sex. And when we look at the legal landscape on um, LGBT people um, at the time, the fact that they treated those questions as facetious is, is rather unsurprising because we were looking at a time when the constitutional landscape with regard to LGBT people was terrible, right? If you look back under the law of Bowers versus Hardwick, in which the Supreme Court ruled that there was nothing wrong with, with criminalizing same-sex intimacy, um, you know, that, that courts would say, sure, there's no problem with discriminating against lesbian, gay, and bisexual people because it, they're criminals. Why should we look at this? Why should we actually engage in this analysis? They weren't doing it. They were just rejecting out of hand the idea that people being discriminated based on sexual orientation could ever come within the protection of the law. But when the jurisprudence on a, at a constitutional level started to change, when Lawrence versus Texas came down in 2003 and the Supreme Court made clear that people's intimate, private, same-sex relationships received the same constitutional protection as everybody else's private, intimate sexual conduct, that, that that's a sea change when it was made clear that you could no longer treat lesbian, gay, and bisexual people as criminals. The courts started looking at the question differently. They started actually asking the question that Title VII requires them to ask whether the discrimination was because of sex that this individual worker experienced. And after 
the Windsor and Obergefell rulings, where it became clear that that same-sex relationships receive constitutional protection and that sexual orientation is is an aspect of people's identity that is inherent in our, our constitutional promises of liberty and equality that changed the landscape tremendously. And as courts in this sort of post-liberty and equality context really started doing the statutory analysis. You have, for example, the Seventh Circuit's ruling in, in Hively versus Ivy Tech Community College actually asking the questions and concluding that the discrimination that Kim Hively experienced after she was her, no longer had a job because she was seen kissing her girlfriend in a parking lot, that that is discrimination because of sex. And courts, that's exactly what the Second Circuit Court of Appeals did as well on Bank in the Zarda case. Uh, as you say, the Seventh Circuit opinion uh, was important and came up in the oral argument. Chief Justice Roberts asked, do you agree or disagree with Judge Posner's statement that the statute should be read to encompass sexual orientation discrimination to avoid placing the entire burden of updating old statutes on the legislative branch? David, to what degree do you think that the lower courts and the Supreme Court should be responsive to the Obergefell and Windsor decisions, which uh, embraced a changed recognition of the constitutional status of sexual orientation. And what's the relevance of that in interpreting the language because of sex? Well, the, the idea that the um, that things have changed since 1964, um, and therefore we need to change our understanding of Title VII, is in tension with the, the principal argument relied upon, which is the textualist originalist argument. Um, and, and that's why um, uh, Pamela Carlin, I, attorney for Harris, is that correct? No, for for um, Stevens, is that correct? She was the attorney for, for one of the sides, or maybe both, um, the employees. But she, uh, she, she said, oh, ju- he's a loose cannon. Judge Posner's a loose cannon. Uh, now, from the conservative standpoint, we'd say that Judge Posner is a very smart guy who's being recklessly candid about what happened in the case. That although um, superficially it's a textualist, uh, we're just reading Title VII according to its plain terms. In fact, it's an example of um, judicial activism uh, where the judges will redefine the statutes um, in the same way that um, Justice Kennedy in Obergefell explicitly said that it's the job of the judges to update the meaning of liberty, and including just by a 5-4 vote. Uh, if this is Obergefell 2.0, that is to say Title VII is going to be reinterpreted according to what uh, five jo- votes on the court uh, want discrimination to mean today, even though it didn't mean in Title VII, it's likely that uh, if that's the question before the court, it's likely that they won't get the five votes as they did in Obergefell. And that's why I think wisely uh, the, the plaintiffs in the case have not made the progressive um, uh, progressive Posner judges need to fix the law because the legislature is too slow mode, but rather to say that, no, it's just a matter of fidelity to the original text. Uh, and that's why Judge Posner was kind of thrown under the bus there at oral argument. Um, shut up, Judge Posner, <laughs> is kind of the response. Um, I'm, I'm overstating it, but uh, uh, I noticed on Twitter some people were saying, ah, Posner, what do you think of that? They just called and said you were a loose cannon. So, um, But that's how that's, that's playing out right now, I think. Uh, Karen, uh, David is descriptively right, I think, that uh, if – the case turns on whether the court should update the statute. The conservative justices might be less inclined to do so. And indeed, Justice Alito 
uh, said so at the oral argument. He said, Congress has been asked repeatedly in the years since 1964 to address this question. The Equality Act is before Congress right now. That's the act that would prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation explicitly. Congress has declined or failed to act on these requests. And if the court takes this up and interprets this 1964 statute to prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation, we will be acting exactly like a legislature. Uh, what uh, is your response to that concern of the conservative justices? Sure. Well, so so one thing I do want to just say about Judge Posner, there there are many lovely things in his opinion <laughs> at a very non-conceptual, non-doctrinal basis. But but let's be clear that he had to write separately because the en banc majority of the Seventh Circuit um, engaged in precisely the kind of textualist doctrinal analysis um, that the statute requires. Um, so so I think it's easy to to hold up Judge Posner's uh, opinion as as um as somehow the epitome of judicial activism but but let's be clear that's not actually what the seventh circuit on banc held um you know i think that that you know i raised the constitutional cases for for a reason but but not because it suggests that there's a a changing meaning of title 7 per se um you know the constitutional principles of liberty and equality i i agree with justice kennedy the, those principles our understanding of those principles can evolve um but the arguments being made in this case um with regard to the meaning of title 7 um is actually not that that text has changed or that the meaning of because of sex has changed. It's simply a recognition that the application of those terms um, sometimes will encompass things that Congress did not originally anticipate. And again, this goes back to, to you know, Justice Scalia's unanimous decision in On Call. Um, what the prohibition of discrimination because of sex may encompass or apply to has expanded. Um, and the Supreme Court's Title VII jurisprudence has has made that abundantly clear um, as, you know, even with, with the recognition of sex stereotyping as a form of sex discrimination and sexual harassment as a form of sex discrimination. Those were not things Congress anticipated in 1964. And nonetheless, the Supreme Court has squarely held those to be prohibited sex discrimination within the meaning of the statute. As far as the Equality Act goes, um, you know, there are, there are many reasons why, why, you know, as a, as a broader um, political approach, um, the Equality Act is important and necessary. But, but frankly, the Equality Act will be, be necessary even, even if the Supreme Court applies Title Seven to the discrimination that LGBTQ people already are experiencing. Um, the Equality Act um, would make explicit um, these protections in, in even beyond employment and housing. Um, they would address public accommodations laws. They would address, you know, a, a broadening understanding of of what kinds of conduct. Um, are prohibited under federal law, um, but but that's that's a separate issue from whether or not again what what Don Zarda and Jerry Bostock and Amy Stevens experienced was discrimination because of sex within the existing meaning of Title Seven. Let's turn now to R. G. and G. R. Harris funeral homes, uh, the case involving the transgender uh, woman Amy Stevens. 
And uh, David, I want to ask whether the statutory or textualist argument uh, about transgender discrimination is uh, different than that for discrimination against uh, people based on their sexual orientation. Before the oral argument, it had been conventional wisdom that the case involving transgender individuals might be easier to win for the plaintiffs as a textualist matter than the case involving discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Do you agree or not? And how did that play out at the oral argument? You know, it's interesting. I, I was not familiar with that distinction. I, I thought that the transgender status um, in one respect would be stronger because um, uh, Stevens's claim can be more closely analogized to um, the sex stereotyping issue involved in PricewaterhouseCooper. And there, um, according to the facts, um, uh, the stipulated facts in the case, um, and there, the, uh, the Alice Hopkins, I believe, was the name of the employee. She was denied uh, some employment benefit because it was said she she walked and talked uh, too much like a man. And um, the court um, unanimously assumed that that was obviously a form of sex discrimination because they imposed a kind of standard of conduct on a woman that was not imposed on a man, et cetera. And the similar type of argument could be made. And I believe um, it was transgender status that was found by federal courts to be covered in uh, 15 years ago. And, and um, Karen can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was transgender status that came first. Um, that is, say, the first federal courts to, to agree. So in terms of precedent, I would say that um, uh, the transgender argument um, – might be a little bit stronger because the precedent is older and the the idea of sex stereotyping be based on mode of dress um, is seems to be similar to mode of mode of speech, uh, which was involved in the PricewaterhouseCooper. Um, on the other hand, uh, there's reason to believe that uh, the court might side with the sec- if if there, there's reason to believe there's a chance that the court will split the difference the other way, uh, because um, saying that transgender status. Uh, is covered under sex, uh, sex and sex discrimination would involve more immediate costs to employers and employees in terms of challenging possibly things like separate restrooms, separate dress ha- um, modes of address, separate or sex, sex distinct um, dress codes, etc. Whereas sexual orientation is largely something that is done off the job. So in Bostick's case, um, according to the you know asserted facts. Um, Bostick belongs to, you know, a softball league, a uh, gay men's softball league in Atlanta. And, you know, how does that affect what anyone else is doing on the job? So it seems it would be easy, uh, less costly, uh, seemingly, uh, to just to say, you know, the text is ambiguous, but we'll decide that sexual orientation, um, that one won't impose much cost. Textualism there is cheap, whereas transgenderism involves opens up a whole can of worms of costs on employers and fellow employees, you know, restroom issues, et cetera that we don't want to handle. So stated briefly, precedent on one hand would probably would, would give a stronger case, I think, for the transgender claims. Uh, but um, costs, uh, burdens, uh, would seem to give a, 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 a stronger case for the sexual orientation plaintiffs. Karen, David makes a crisp argument saying that precedent may favor treating transgender discrimination as a f- more uh, clearly as a form of sex discrimination than sexual orientation discrimination in particular because of the price waterhouse precedent which says that you can't discriminate against someone for failing to walk and talk more femininely as david cole the lawyer for amy stevens said in the oral argument on the other hand 
David says that textualism is cheaper in the sexual orientation than the transgender cases because the social effects would be far more disruptive. What's your response to both of those arguments? So there are a couple of ways that I would respond. First is I think it's important to actually look at what the question presented was um, in in the Harris Funeral Homes versus EEOC and Amy Stevens case. The the question which actually got reformulated um, from the the cert petition put forth by the Alliance Defending Freedom, which represents Harris Funeral Homes. Um, to to really zero in on whether Title VII prohibits discrimination against transgender people based on either their status as transgender or a form of sex stereotyping under Price Waterhouse. So there, are, the court has recognized or has asked the question of whether each of these routes independently gets us to coverage under Title VII for transgender workers. Um, and, and yes, I, as a precedential matter, um, courts of appeals for the first, sixth, seventh, ninth, and eleventh circuits have all held that discrimination against transgender workers is a form of sex discrimination. Some of them have gotten there under the Pricewaterhouse sex stereotyping theory. Others have gotten there, um, by recognizing that, um, that, that if you know that that what was really going on for Amy Stevens um, here is that is that the employer could not get past that she was assigned the sex of male at birth and because that was the reason that um, she was fired from her job that that inherently is a form of discrimination because of sex um, whether you're using the the definition of sex as in in terms of biology that that the employer here and the Department of Justice here has put forth or, or whether you're looking at it in terms of what the sex was assigned at birth Either way, what's going on here is clearly rooted in sex discrimination. Um, you know, the, the, the question of, of, you know, the, the impacts in the workplace, um, in many ways, I think is a distraction. That's not actually what the statute is asking you to look at. What the statute is asking you to look at is whether Amy Stevens was fired because of sex. And, you know, the, the ramifications of what that looks like in different workplaces and what it means to ensure that employees are not being discriminated against because of sex are almost, are almost secondary here. Um, and frankly, you know, as we saw during argument, um, you know, this this question of, you know, the, the parade of horribles that would, would flow from ensuring that transgender workers are able to have equal employment opportunity, um, you know, it really, it really is in many ways a distraction um, from what the statute requires to be asked under these circumstances and and whether, you know, as Justice Kagan really zeroed in on, there's a very simple test that the Supreme Court laid out in 1978 to determine whether sex discrimination has occurred. And that question is whether the evidence shows that treatment of a person in a manner which but for that person's sex would be different. Um, and that's clearly what, what Amy Stevens experienced. So David, what's your response first to that textualist argument, uh, which David Cole made at the very beginning of his oral argument on behalf of Amy Stevens. He said Harris Holmes fired Amy Stevens for identifying as a woman only because she was assigned a male sex at birth. Uh, that is disp disparate treatment on the basis of sex. And Harris Holmes fired her for changing her sex, 
that's discrimination in the same way that firing someone for changing their religion would be religious discrimination. So the response to that textualist argument and then to Karen's claim that the parade of horribles is overstated, what were some of those uh, horribles or rather dramatic consequences that uh, might flow from recognizing transgender discrimination on the basis uh, as, as contravening Title VII? Um, let me let me begin with uh, the parade of horribles. If the textualist argument is no one may be subject to an adverse discrimination where his sex or her, her sex is the but-for cause, um, this the, the the law necessarily will apply to anyone who challenges a sex-specific restroom or sex-specific um, dress code or term of address. Uh, there isn't a transgender exception set forth. All persons, regardless of, of sexual orientation, regardless of transgender status, enjoy the benefits of Title VII by its obvious terms, freedom from race discrimination, sex discrimination, religious color, and national origin. I think I got them all there uh, under Title VII. And so what you'd have is a, marrying a textualist argument that says words mean what they mean and then saying, well, what we actually mean is we're only trying to carve this out for benefit of persons who identify as transgender. Um, that would just drill violence to the text of the of the of the statute. I get fired for using the wrong restroom. Um, I have an adverse effect. I have a cause of action under Title VII, and I don't have to prove non-transgender or transgender status to get that. Um, if in fact the the naked and I think I think persuasive, at least superficially persuasive textualist argument should prevail. Um, I should mention something else uh, that is uh, really an elephant in the room, and I, I promise I mean this in a really nonpartisan way. Um, this whole case about reading Title VII in, in terms of either its original purposes versus its naked text, um, everyone in that courtroom, and I, su I suspect everyone in this call, uh, knows that they've heard this song before, and they heard it in the context of affirmative action and race discrimination under Title VII. In fact, uh, Jeffrey, I had to laugh this weekend. I was looking up just to do a quick refresher on um, – Employment, uh, United Steelworkers versus Weber and colorblind constitutionalism. I do a Google search, and on the first page of my results is an article by someone named Jeffrey Rosen from 1996 on on the colorblind constitution. And here's why it's the elephant in the room. Um, the sort of text is text and discrimination is discrimination was the argument made by the uh, conservative dissenters in that case, uh, Justice Chief Justice Berger, and rather rather forcefully by Justice Rehnquist. Everybody in the court knows this case. Uh, his successor, Chief Justice Roberts, knows it. They know that Rehnquist was, uh, was very emphatic that an affirmative action program that plainly made a distinction because of race um, and suffer, a, a white employee suffered an adverse consequence as a result. He said there should be no exception, whereby the, meanwhile the majority says, look, we need to interpret this statute with some flexibility in terms of its original expectation and purpose. So the naked textualist argument was the old conservative argument for colorblind Title VII. Um, and a little flexibility, a lot of it, was necessary for affirmative action. On this question right now, there's something of a ceasefire on the court or politically, but it's not really been settled. And the flip side of it is the progressives know this too. And so there's a, there's a certain difficulty. No, virtually no brief cited that case, which is the most relevant uh, to this, this, this deep argument about naked textualism versus original expectation. But our listeners, um, particularly our younger listeners who don't remember the 20th century, um, need to know that this was still – this was a very big, case, big issue that um, involved um, not a lot of blood but at least a lot of ink and a lot of passion. 
um, across uh, several decades and is still not entirely settled. The conservatives on the court tend to say we should have no discrimination and that means no discrimination. Um, text is text. And the progressives tend to say, well, you have to make exceptions because the real purpose of Title VII and should be equal employment opportunity, as since the name of the, uh, the commission. Again, I'm not saying this is a partisan matter, but it is the deafening silence on that was very telling uh, because the, both the progressive and the conservative coalitions know these arguments already. But the, the fact is that they cut exactly the opposite way in terms of the conservatives and the progressives. Um, I'm happy to also continue, but I've talked enough right now. Um, uh, thank you so much for that. Thanks for recalling that piece, The Colorblind Court. I had to Google it because I didn't remember it. And of course, uh, ever since I joined the National Constitution Center, I have no opinions whatsoever. But uh, <laughs> as you said, there was a vigorous debate in the 1990s about whether uh, the text of uh, the, the, the federal statute should be interpreted to ban affirmative action or not. And Karen, to respond to the challenge that David poses, to what degree are conservative and liberal justices being asked to switch their usual positions on textualism? Uh, uh, traditionally, conservatives have said, let's just look at the text and not look at legislative history and not make any exceptions. And liberals have said we should look at the text in the context of legislative history and make exceptions. But that does not seem to be leading to traditionally conservative or liberal positions in these cases. You know, I actually think that that it is the conservative textualist argument here here absolutely that that does carry the day. You know, we did hear a lot um, during argument about you know whether these cases would affect you know the existence of dress codes and single sex facilities like restrooms. And you know, there 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 are a couple of things that really stood out from that entire conversation. You know, one is tied to Justice Gorsuch's pondering whether you know a rule ruling in favor of LGBTQ workers would cause, you know, massive upheaval, as he said. And, you know, to the extent there there was a question about what the text actually implied, he he raised some concerns about that. But but, you know, I think David Cole arguing for, for Amy Stevens really responded correctly and quickly by by really pointing to the reality check that um you know, as I said, there there have been five courts of appeals that have already ruled that Title VII does protect transgender workers, and we have not seen any of that massive upheaval. You know, these protections have been recognized by federal courts for for decades at this point, and we haven't seen any upheaval. And and the same thing is true in the states that do have explicit protections um, based on sexual orientation or gender identity. So so to the extent there are issues that have to get worked out with regard to access to single-sex facilities or sex-segregated facilities, um, dress codes, things, you know, that, that, you know, I know that David's amicus brief really focused on, A, those are actually a question for another day because that is not what Amy Stevens experienced. What Amy Stevens experienced is that she announced she was going to be identifying and living as the woman she is, and she was fired, period, the end. It was not about access to bathrooms. She said she was happy to wear the dress code that Harris Funeral Homes had set for women. Um, 
So really, the sole issue is she came out as transgender and she was fired. And the only question in front of the court is whether what Amy experienced was discrimination because of sex. Um, and so so there is, again, all of this discussion of dress codes and, and sex segregated facilities are really not before the court right now. And to the extent the court is concerned about them, the track record um, in the jurisdictions where these protections have been recognized have has really made clear um, that all of those concerns about upheaval are, are a little bit overblown. David, just one uh, final note on what the consequences might be. Uh, Justice Gorsuch worried openly about them. If the court recognizes uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation as well as discrimination on the basis of gender identity, as sex discrimination covered by Title VII, what, in your view, would be some of the more extreme social and legal consequences? Well, I mean, the most obvious, as I've already indicated, I'll be restating it. It's just that the um, the, the rule, the interpretation of Title VII that's naked textualist says no discrimination whatsoever because of sex. And if any sex-specific policy leads indirectly to an adverse employment effect, saying I'm not wearing a tie, um, women don't have to wear ties, um, uh, and I get fired, I've got a cause of action. And, and what we'd have to do, which is suggested in the oral argument, is don't worry, the lower courts will carve out all the exceptions. But the Supreme Court is um, really not just hearing uh, Amy Stevens' case. The Supreme Court's setting up a rule, a going to set up a precedent that will have to be followed in countless cases, um, and then give rise to an enormous um, burden on the judiciary to do something that the statute does not permit, and that is to start distinguishing between people based upon how transgendered they are, whether they're going to get this protection or not. Um, if, in fact, this Title VII requires sex blindness, it requires sex blindness all the way down, um, and Congress would have to amend the statute, um, according to the, the, my opinion of the plaintiff's account. Um, the sexual orientation would have less obvious effects because sexual orientation largely is not employment-related. Um, and so persons, for example, Bostic not getting fired because of what he, he – the, the associations he has off the job um, would be something that would be easy to, um, to adopt, easy to enforce and would not impose a lot of burdens. Um, just ignore the fact that he got whatever he does on the – you know, the, his uh, – for joining this baseball league or whatever. Um, the – one of the ways it would have kind of a, a deeper effect would be the elaboration of the hostile work environment theory. Now, under that – um, employers are, are required to, to maintain um, a workforce where you're not going to hear a lot of racial epithets, right? uh, in fact, fire employees for using racial epithets. Now, if racial epithets are the same thing as uttering a conservative belief, such as, you know what, I just don't think that's marriage. I, I think marriage is a union of a man and woman. Um, the application of the, the um, hostile work environment would mean that there would be effectively um, a requirement that employers refrain from saying such things uh, and, and that they make their employees refrain from saying such things. And as long as there's a significant minority of Americans who still believe that marriage is the union of man and woman for life, whose principal, God, principal object is the, is the conception and education of children and therefore necessarily male-female um, – it's going to be uh, – that's going to have a kind of a negative effect on um, on conservative Americans. It won't be as, as widespread. It won't be as immediately felt and it won't, it won't involve sort of necessarily daily problems uh, unlike uh, in the context of, of challenging sex-specific you know, restrooms, dress codes, et cetera. Karen, in your piece 
sex in the Supreme Court, it's not just about LGBT workers. You and Jennifer Pitzer uh, envision not a parade of horribles, but a parade of wonderfuls, a series of uh, salutary legal uh, impacts in your view that could follow from recognizing sexual orientation and, and gender identity discrimination as discrimination because of sex. Uh, and you say that those would range from cases involving protections in federal laws covering housing, healthcare, credit, and education, all of which could build on these employment litigation victories. Tell us more about what some of those salutary effects, in your opinion, might be. Sure. Um, if it's okay, I'd actually like to back up to address just one small piece of, of what David was just saying about the hostile work environment cases. Um, so so I, I find it so interesting that, that that's the piece that, that um, somehow um, – that that supports this idea that that somehow it would be problematic to to be um, ensuring uh, Title VII's application to LGBTQ people in the workplace that 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 would make it somehow problematic because the hostile work environment jurisprudence from the Supreme Court actually is inherently about what goes on in the workplace and and despite the fact that it was going to really in many ways um, create a sea change about what was expected of both employers and supervisors and co-employees about conduct in the workplace, the Supreme Court squarely has held that harassment um, and hostile work environment is prohibited by by Title VII. And so to the extent that in the transgender context, um, the concern is that, that a ruling for Amy Stevens here would have such dramatic effects in the workplace, that's not actually a restraint on how the Supreme Court has, has applied Title VII. And the other piece of that is that, you know, it, it's one thing for people to have beliefs or even make simple statements. You always have to remember that the test under hostile work environment is whether or not the conduct in the workplace is severe, sufficiently severe or pervasive so as to deprive a worker of equal employment opportunity because of one of the protected traits. Um, so, so the courts have an established framework for assessing whether something runs afoul of Title VII in that context or not. So going back to the question you actually just asked me, Jeff, uh, about sort of the implications um, for other federal um, sex discrimination protections, um, you know, it's absolutely the case that in many ways, case law that has come down in the Title VII in the employment context um, has been looked to by other courts um, in a assessing the scope or application of other federal anti-discrimination laws, including the Fair Housing Act, including um, the Equal um, Equal Credit Opportunity Act, including uh, Title IX um, and Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act. So there's no doubt that whatever the Supreme Court rules in this case will, will be clearly instructive um, in these other contexts. I do think it's really important to recognize that there are actually textual differences among the different statutes. So it may not be the case that they are interpreted 100% in lockstep as courts really examine what those what those textual differences are, um, much of which goes to sort of the the role of the protected trait um, 
and and in whatever the relevant decision making has been, whether it's in the housing context or or any of the other contexts. So I'm not saying you know my colleague Jenny Pfizer and I are not are not suggesting that that whatever happens here is binding for all time in every other federal sex discrimination law, but it will definitely be instructive. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this absolutely fascinating and illuminating discussion. And uh, David, the first one is to you. Uh, perhaps you could sum up for our listeners why you believe that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and on the basis of gender identity should not be recognized as discrimination because of sex under Title VII. This is my argument, which is chiefly textual, which I haven't presented. The text was written in 1964, and it prohibits discrimination because of sex. The word discrimination had and still has in the dictionaries two meanings, one of which is to make any distinction whatsoever which favors the plaintiffs. The second, which is to make a discrimination that is adverse to an individual because of membership in a group. The second one seems to be consistent with what they intended in res with respect to sex. We can see this in two ways. First, the meaning of sex discrimination has already lived under for decades of experience under state and various other laws that had in different contexts. For 100 years in Kansas, you have a state constitution that says no sex distinction in the public schools. That therefore indicates that there's already a legal meaning, which is in fact part of the naked statutory meaning. Um, the second is that, um, that the, what's prohibited is a, to make a discrimination. Now, as Justice Ginsburg, then Ruth Bader Ginsburg, indicated in her brief to the Supreme Court in Reed versus Reed, to say that sex discrimination is like race discrimination is a, a, a seminal 1971 Supreme Court case on sex discrimination. She said there are two forms of distinctions that obviously are going to be permitted. First, those based on biology, such as distinguishing between maternity and paternity. And second, those that related to basic customs and interests, and I'm quoting from it, shared by members of both sexes and personal privacy. And those things justify and even require separation of the sexes in restrooms, sleeping quarters, etc. Where you have those two things, things that biology made or things that um, deep custom of society that was made by and for the interests of both sexes, those are not discriminations made by employers. Employers are simply accepting the world as it is, made by nature and made by deep custom that was not meant, meant to make one sex superior over another. You have those sorts of things, she indicates in that brief. That's not going to be covered by a robust anti-sex discrimination jurisprudence. And in fact, she calls it a canard in that brief, kind of a joke to even suggest it. What was a joke at that time in 1971 is now being treated as if it's obviously the meaning of the text. Something's wrong with the plaintiff's textualist argument. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, and thank you very much uh, for that uh, closing argument. And Karen, the last argument is to you. Uh, please tell our We The People listeners why you believe that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and of gender identity should be actionable as discrimination because of sex under Title VII. Thanks, Jeffrey. So, so Title VII, by its explicit terms, states that it shall be an unlawful employment practice for an employer to fail or refuse to hire or to discharge any individual or otherwise to discriminate against any individual with respect to his compensation, terms, conditions, or privileges of employment because of such individuals in this instance, sex. That's what the statute prohibits. 
And in these cases, the issue before the court is whether the employment discrimination against these individual LGBTQ workers um, was because of sex. That's the question before the court. The arguments that I articulated earlier about how each individual worker's sex was clearly at the root of their each of their being fired um, really make clear that what they experienced is squarely prohibited by that text of that statute. All of the discussions around whether Congress could have anticipated protecting LGBT workers under this statute in 1964 are entirely beside the point. Covering the discrimination that LGBTQ workers face under Title VII sex discrimination prohibition is grounded in and follow from the long settled precedent handed down by the Supreme Court that Title VII does not allow one hiring policy for women and another for men. It does not allow treatment of a person in a manner that but for their sex would have been different. All of the jurisprudence around sex stereotyping and sexual harassment. This really boils down to what what Justice Ginsburg pointed to during argument that Title VII strikes at the entire spectrum of disparate treatment resulting from sex stereotypes. Um, that was it from the Manhart case. It, it's very clear that recognizing the discrimination that these LGBT employees faced as a form of sex discrimination stands directly in line with all of this jurisprudence and um, is squarely prohibited by the text that, that Congress actually enacted. Thank you so much, Karen Lowy and David Upham, for uh, an illuminating, sophisticated, and extremely educational discussion of these crucially important cases before the Supreme Court. We, the people listeners, to learn more, please make sure to read the briefs uh, filed by Karen and David. Karen on behalf of Lambda Legal Defense and Education Fund, and David on behalf of the American Public Philosophy Institute. Karen, David, thank you so much for joining. Thank you all very much. Thanks so much for having me. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team. We the People Friends, you can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're also now linked on the Constitution Center and Atlantic website, The Battle for the Constitution. It's a wonderful new project that brings together leading voices from across the thought spectrum to discuss constitutional issues in the news. Check it out at The Atlantic and let me know what you think. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.